This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, June 18th, 2021, and I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Today we are having a conversation about mental health and well-being in the federal law enforcement community. Law enforcement officers face unique stresses both on and off the job, and today we will talk about why mental health is as important as physical health for first responders. We will also discuss how law enforcement officers can maximize their mental fitness to ensure they are ready to respond when communities need them. To kick off this conversation, let me introduce our panel of guests. First, we have Angela Bailey, Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Angie has dedicated more than 39 years to public service and was appointed to her current position in 2016. In her role, she is responsible for the department's human capital program, which includes human resource policy, systems and programs for strategic workforce planning, recruitment and hiring, pay and leave, performance management, employee development, work life and employee safety and health. Angie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Next, we have Shelly Jones. Shelly is the executive director of Survivors of Blue Suicide. After 21 years of service in law enforcement, Shelly joined National Concerns of Police Survivors as the director of operations. In April 2020, Shelly, with the blessing and support of COPS, started a new nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide peer support and mental health support for families of officers who die by suicide. Welcome and thank you for joining us, Shelly. Thank you. Finally, we have Dr. Jean Kanakogi, Director of Mental Health and Peer Support Services for the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association. Jean began her federal law enforcement career with the U.S. Customs Service and currently serves as a senior special agent with the FDA Office of Criminal Investigations. She is the first to hold her role within FLEOA and is working to build a peer support program to support the mental health of the federal law enforcement community. She is also a fifth degree black belt in judo and a former member of the U.S. National Judo Team. Welcome, Jean, and thank you for being here. Hi, everybody, and thanks for having me. Before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. The Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program is sponsored by the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, insured by John Hancock Life and Health Insurance Company, and under a group long-term care life insurance policy administered by long-term care partners. To learn more, visit them at ltcfeds.com today. Before we continue, I want to warn our audience that we will be discussing hard topics today, like law enforcement suicide and mental distress. If this conversation hits too close to home, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 
The Lifeline provides 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress, prevention and crisis resources for you and your loved ones, as well as best practices for professionals. You may also reach out to the COP line by texting HOME to 741-741. The COP line is a not-for-profit 501c3 dedicated to serving active and retired law enforcement officers and their loved ones by providing confidential 24-7 trained retired officers for callers that are dealing with various stressors both on and off the job. They can assist you with a referral to a culturally competent mental health professional. As a reminder, that is the COP line by texting HOME to 741-741. We're diving into this conversation today by talking about why mental health matters. And I think it's important to do that on a personal level, why it matters for you as a law enforcement officer. So to kick off that conversation, I think it would be helpful to talk about how mental health impacts the families, coworkers, and friends of law enforcement, as well as the officers themselves. Shelly, I know you have firsthand experience working with the families and friends of law enforcement. Can you talk a little bit about why mental health matters and why it's important that we have these conversations? Well, it's kind of like you said, it impacts the families. Uh, it, it also impacts the communities. Um, the officers have to take care of themselves because if they don't, um, it, it affects how they interact with their families, it ha how they interact with their coworkers um, and um, their, their agencies. And a healthy officer is a more positive officer. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, having an individually healthy person is really important for making sure that they can not only do their job, but engage with the other people in their life. Um, and I would be curious if anyone else has anything to add around this idea of how mental health impacts an officer, not just their mental health, but also their physical health. Stress. It affects your digestive system, it, the cortisol release. Uh, it affects your heart, plaque buildup. Uh, it, it affects your overall wellness where you make uh, quick choices to eat something quickly versus sitting down to a meal because you have limited time. Also, because of the mental pain, a lot of uh, people who have mental health issues and are dealing with the stress, they self-medicate and that only can spiral in a, in a downward way. So positive mental health can have tremendous benefits in an officer's life, but the stress overall does not impact the officer's life in any way positive. So what they have to do is really just turn it around through, as we'll, I'm sure we'll get to this uh, later on, different ways of reshifting re the focus and, and resilience training. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that um, kind of relationship between physical and mental health is very interesting. And I want to talk to Angie a little bit on a workforce level, not just an individual officer, but how do we see the importance of mental fitness for, you know, as an employer? Do you have some perspective on that? Certainly, yes. And, and I think you kind of touched on some of this um, a little bit earlier when we were, I think we actually before we came live, but about, you know, with 9-11. With and um, one of the things with DHS, uh, Homeland Security, we were really born out of 9-11 and out of that crisis. And so our law enforcement culture, we have an, an entire mission set that I think is really bent around 
um, one crisis after another. And so one of the things we've been really thinking about is how this actually plays into the them being the whole person and not just like their law enforcement duty, because at the end of the day, even though they're doing so much uh, challenging, uh, difficult work under challenging circumstances and conditions, they're still mothers and fathers, their husbands, their wives, their neighbors, you know, they, they worry about all the same things. Um, so in addition to worrying about whether or not they're going to catch the drug cartel, they're also worried about student loan debt. They're also worried about, can I get my child picked up at daycare on time? Uh, some of our officers actually take their uniform off before even going to pick up their child because they are worried about the impact uh, that it might have on their child if someone were to see that you know their father was a law enforcement officer. So the impact that this is having on an agency and our ability to carry out its mission is really uh, something that's incredibly important to us because it's, again, it's, and I think you guys touched on this earlier, it's not just about the impact to the employee, but to the families, uh, to their coworkers, and, and actually to the communities at large in which they serve. Absolutely. I was reading um, the Department of Justice did a report to Congress last year on this issue, and they really emphasized the point that Shelley made earlier, which is that healthy officers are necessary for healthy communities. And we have uh, just another minute before we cut into our break here. But one of the things Angie mentioned was the ways in which 9-11 served as a turning point for law enforcement in a lot of ways. And Jean, I was wondering if you could talk about how you saw that specifically in conversations about mental health and well-being. Absolutely. After the attacks of 9-11, and I should add that I, I was down there digging on the pile, so I'm part of the rescue recovery effort, I was approached by a colleague who is also, who's an FBI agent, and she was telling me about the EAP, and she wanted to know if there's anybody I could recommend or if I wanted to talk about what was happening. And of course, in the fix of it, I, I'm like, I didn't want to talk. I just wanted to keep working. But the fact that it just clicked and said, hey, wait a minute, somebody wants to talk about this. And it was another agent digging, who was digging beside me. So that was awesome because that really was the turning point where I knew that law enforcement and mental health should start going in the same direction. Thank you for not only that description, but for all of your work in this area. And of course, the 9-11 response. Um, my father was also, you know, one of those officers helping on the ground on 9-11. And my mother was actually a social worker at the time in New York City. And so having that kind of dual perspective in my household, I feel like I really saw how it changed the conversation as well. It was a major turning point. And we do need to stop here for our first break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about how we have been able to, since then, start having these hard conversations and moving forward. We'll be right back on Fed Talk. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are here talking with FLIOA, Survivors of Blue Suicide, and the Department of Homeland Security's Chief Human Capital Office about issues relating to law enforcement well-being. 
I want to kick this segment off by talking about how we introduce these concepts of well-being, mental fitness, and even suicide prevention in organizations. And Angie, I think you are the perfect person, you know, leading the Department of Homeland Security on these human capital issues to talk about how we kick off these important conversations. Yes, um, you know, it's it's interesting. Literally right before this conversation, I actually was meeting with our um, Deputy Undersecretary for Management and our, um, our one of our executives in, in Customs, Border and Protection about this very issue. And since 2016, we've had like over 700 employee deaths, uh, actually in the last three years, I'm sorry. But in, in one of our components alone, since 2016, we've had 55 suicides with eight of those already in 2021. So it is absolutely an issue for us. And it's one that, that what we all, what we actually talked about, um, myself and, and leadership was this has got to be a full frontal assault from the leadership's standpoint. The leadership needs to really step in and really start driving some of this. This can't necessarily be one of these organic grassroots kind of efforts. So one of the things that we have done is like a year-long suicide prevention and awareness campaign called Shine the Light campaign. It's monthly messaging about the resources and programs. We have suicide awareness and prevention trainings, our employee assistance program, as well as we've implemented chaplaincy and peer support groups as well. So what we've and I know a little bit later on, we're going to talk about the risk factors and, and um, you know, and things that we've seen that we know contribute to our suicides. But uh, I think the main focus I want to really stress is that we're not shying away from the issue, that instead we're taking a very, uh, very focused leadership um, support and effort into making sure that we can begin those conversations keep those conversations going, and then actually activate and deploy our, um, our colleagues. And so that it, again, it's not just a leadership issue, that it becomes something that becomes almost like um, the DHS family itself begins to rally around this issue and to support our colleagues. That's very interesting to hear about how you've really been able to get that leadership buy-in that's necessary for continuing the conversation all the way down the line to your frontline officers. And it really reinforces this idea that this is an all-hands-on-deck approach. We need everyone to be understanding how this impacts not just the individual officer, but the communities and their families. And I think a theme we've gotten so far in this show is that it may be one person's mental health, but it does not just impact one person. And so seeing the organization wide buy-in for having these hard conversations is very, um, it's, it's great to hear. And I do want to talk a little bit about how we identify some of these warning signs and these risk factors in individual officers so that we are able to identify when intervention is needed and make sure that the officer has access to it. Shelly, can you speak a little bit to this? One of the biggest risk factors is the trauma, the cumulative trauma that the officers encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the average officer um, encounters more trauma than any citizen um, you'll ever come across. And if they don't address this trauma, it, it creates more problems, um, such as um, they become agitated or they have mood swings. Um, you know, families uh, 
interaction with the officer changes because of the way the officer's behavior is. And um, they'll start feeling, having feelings of inadequacy or um, feeling like they're not as important as they used to be to the family. And the family will start to identify some of these issues um, long before the officer does, but it's getting them the help for that uh, and getting them to address it themselves, which is the difficult part. Um, you know, suicide is not, there's no one cause per se to suicide. Uh, there's multiple. Um, sometimes it's just the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, and I hear that time and time again from the survivors. Um, for example, we had one, um, the incident at Ferguson, Missouri, um, the, the riots that took place there. Um, one of the survivors said her husband was never the same after he came home from those riots. And then he began to spiral downward and she could see it, but it wasn't as clear to him. The, the reason that, you know, we're having this conversation in the context of law enforcement um, it is because in a single shift, a law enforcement officer can experience more trauma than most individuals would in their lifetime. And Absolutely. all it takes is, you know, a couple of bad days um, for something for a, a, an item of trauma to really stick with someone. Um, and we and, you know, we talked about it with the 9-11 um, kind of response and how that impacted so many officers Um but it did allow for these conversations to occur a little bit more openly. Jean, can you talk a little bit more to some of the stressors and the kind of constant issues that can become small causes that add up? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the activating event, and, and one thing I want to echo it, uh, what Shelley said is the discussion about cumulative trauma. It's not just one thing that will push somebody into uh, attempting or trying to die by suicide. So why people tend to go down that rabbit hole? Well, they're in pain. They wanna stop the pain. They wanna stop the physical pain and the mental pain. The, you know, the, Your Body Keeps the Score is a really good book by uh, Dr. Vandekult. And it tells about how mental health affects your physical health. And this is long-term pain. The other thing that is, is they feel that they're a burden. They're a burden to their department, to their family, because maybe they have an, a substance abuse problem. Maybe they have a physical ailment and they feel that they're a burden. And lastly, which is again, not all inclusive, they're familiar. Law enforcement officers are familiar with the method on how to die by suicide more than anybody, because we carry a tool every day that allows for that. Uh, and, and again, some of the other warning signs that you really have to actively listen, and again, they're so subtle and so uh, discreet, is they talk about killing themselves. They make statements, oh, I wish I wasn't born. They engage in self-destructive behavior. Maybe they say goodbye to certain people. Uh, you had mentioned mood swings, but everything is very subtle, and the majority of people are, are caught by surprise because usually in, in the past, I've heard, well, he was such a good guy. He was so friendly, he had so many friends. So it's not the person who walks around 
constantly saying, and, and it's not exclusive of this person, but it's not the person that you would just think. Uh, unfortunately, I had a uh, colleague that told me years ago that she was going to and go on a cruise with her mom. And she was so excited to go on this cruise with her mom. Uh, prior to that, I didn't realize that she had a lot of domestic issues. And uh, after she had died by suicide, I had found out when she made that statement, her mom had already been deceased for five years. So it's very, very subtle. And this was a very accomplished law enforcement officer, a very successful person who had a lot of friends. So you really have to pay attention. And it's the slight changes in behavior that Shelley had mentioned. You know, if you see something, say something. Don't be afraid. That's a great point. And, you know, I, when you talk about those subtle changes, one that I read about that I found particularly interesting in talking about, you know, kind of the access to a firearm, because, you know, officers use these these weapons all the time. I read one interesting story about um, kind of increased recklessness with their firearm and an officer who you notice is not, you know, putting their duty weapon away the same way. They're starting to have changes in how they act with their, their firearm. That can be an indicator, a very subtle indicator that of increased recklessness and potentially looking at that for a different use that could be self-harm. And that was just so striking to me, this idea of something so subtle um, that, that can be an indication of a risk factor um, or a warning sign. And I think it's great that you both discuss this idea of looking at the small, subtle things and how they accumulate um, and can cause something very tragic. These are, of course, very tragic circumstances. And often the way that a department responds afterward can um, impact how the community reacts as well. Shelly, in your work, you guys deal directly with helping ensure that departments are able to respond in a way that prevents these types of um, issues in the future and, you know, is supportive to the families and the communities and the departments, as well as these officers' coworkers who likely experience, you know, just some trauma from being friends with someone who has committed suicide. Can you talk a little bit about what that response looks like or perhaps should look like? Yes. Um, it's often referred to as post-mention. Um, it's where um, the agency addresses the needs of the agency um, and the coworkers. It's also taking care of the family um, um, after a suicide. Um, the big thing with the agency is communication and getting them um, support and making it available to them. One of the things that I hear um, often from coworkers is they, they don't trust their EAP. You know, 30 years ago, there was probably a basis for that. Today, things I, I think things are a little different because agencies are aware of that. Um, so if you have officers who are afraid to talk to their um, a department EAP, then they they should help make arrangements with outside counseling for them. Um, one of the things that we offer, if if people in an agency aren't comfortable talking to their own peer support or um, EAP, if they reach out to us, we'll get them connected with somebody so that they are comfortable and they have that level of confidentiality that they need. Um, 
the agency's uh, debriefings are very important. And uh, most importantly, I guess what I forgot to say in the beginning is having a plan on how to handle it um, so that your entire agency knows what to do and how the department is going to react if a suicide happens. So helping um, all of the coworkers, and we're not just talking about the officers, we're talking about the dispatchers because they're also affected. So you wanna make sure that, that you take care of them and it's not a Band-Aid approach, it's a long-term approach. Um, and, and have a team that can watch out for um, some of those warning signs after a suicide, because oftentimes um, if an agency suffers one suicide, there's a good possibility they could suffer a second. So they wanna keep an eye on, on those folks. Um, and then there's also the family. You wanna take care of the family. Um, and the family commitment is basically a lifetime commitment. It's not, let's help the family for the next six months. This is a, a lifetime. It's showing up at those graduations. It's showing up at those um, anniversary dates. It's um, the weddings. Um, you see on um, YouTube all the time, all of the things agencies do for these officers who die in the line of duty, okay? For those families. Well, it's the same thing for these officers who die by suicide. These families need that support, um, long-term support because um, they're suffering too, and, and they're suffering a, a loss. Um, communication with the families and within the agency is one of the um, most important things and sending um, the correct message um, to, to the families. One of the things they also should have in place is um, a funeral protocol. Funerals are one of the big topics when it comes to suicide. They, uh, agencies don't want to glamorize it, but what we have to remember is that these funerals are for the families, they're for the living. They're not how the officer that died, it's how that officer lived that we need them to remember. And I know I went into a big long spiel there, and but all of these things are part of taking care of the officers and the families because these coworkers and the family survivors will remember what that agency did till the end of time. Absolutely. It makes all of the difference when that kind of a supportive environment is available. And I really like how you highlighted the very fine line between making sure you're not glamorizing a suicide, but you're also treating it like what it is, which is often a line of duty death. Um, and, and I think that is great. I will also just use this as an opportunity to encourage people to check out on Survivors of Blue Suicide's website. They do have a guide for law enforcement agencies after a, blue, after a suicide in blue. It's a great resource that touches on a lot of what Shelly just mentioned. If your organization does not have a plan in place, um, I highly recommend checking out that resource. It is a great place to start. We do have to stop here for our second break. When we get back, we will continue this conversation. You are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are just entering our second half of our show with Dr. Jean Konakogi, Director of Mental Health and Peer Support at the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, Shelley Jones, Executive Director at Survivors of Blue Suicide, and Angela Bailey, the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. We are having a conversation about mental health and well-being within the federal law enforcement community. We have had some really great discussion about why mental health matters and how we start these conversations and react after there has been a tragedy uh, such as suicide within a law enforcement organization. Now I want to take a step back and talk about meeting employees where they are and ensuring that we are able to both balance the reactive support, uh, such as, you know, a postvention suicide response with prevention and maximizing mental fortitude. And I know DHS has a lot of really great resources for employees in terms of making sure they are maximizing their mental well-being and able to support each other during times of need. Angie, can you speak a little bit to the efforts DHS has underway? Yes, absolutely. So um, one of the things that you touched on it is our employee resource page. And I might have made mention of this earlier, but again, in taking this concept of the whole person, one of the things that we did was make sure that that page is available to the families. So it's a public uh, facing webpage. It's not just for our employees. And we were very purposeful in doing that because, um, you know, as my colleagues on this show have, have discussed, it's, it's incredibly important that, that, that we provide these resources to the, to not only the employees, but the families so that they can actually help recognize some of the things that perhaps our employees or our law enforcement officers themselves may not have recognized. So, a few concrete um, efforts and things, because I think you've hit the nail on the head. And in fact, I was literally just having this conversation with our leadership. I think I mentioned this, but like five seconds before I got on this call, we were having this very conversation about we do a lot of things, you know, with peer support, chaplaincy, et cetera. But we know some of the risk factors. We know some of the things that actually triggers or can be a trigger uh, for suicide. And so we want to take a more proactive approach to making sure that we address that. So as an example, general stress. So one of the things that we've been doing is providing mindfulness, resilience, and stress reduction training, uh, particularly to our law enforcement community, because we're really trying to help the mind stay present in the moment, let go of their negative emotions, I think we've talked about this. The average law enforcement officer will face over 900 critical or traumatic events 
you know, in, in their career. And so we know that, that the increase in neuroplasticity, which is like the ability for the brain to form these new connections and neural pathways would potentially allows for changing how they actually respond to the stress. So we've been really spending a lot of time with that. In fact, actually even putting it into our FLETSI, which is is our federal law enforcement uh, training center and including our border patrol Academy. And, you know, just an example is like when an agent knocks on the door and someone comes and it's a very stressful that what they see is a cell phone that they don't necessarily immediately see a gun. Uh, And so it's just, these are one of the things that we've been working on. Another thing is like introducing concepts such as heart math, where you get the mind and the heart into coherence. The Navy SEALs actually do this as well. So we've been working on how to, you know, deploy that as well across, um, across DHS. So we're really taking a deep dive into the neuroscience of this and really trying to understand, you know, the heart, understand the brain, the mind, and how they how they really work together. The second factor that we're really going after is we know that personal relationships or unresolved personal issues that cause anxiety and stress are another absolute major cause um, of, um, or can be a major cause of suicides. And, you know, actually we did a survey and 22% of our employees said that personal relationships were their biggest distraction at, at work. So we're offering what's called, we call it stronger bonds training, which is, an, um, it really is a proven strategies for couples uh, therapy and research on commitment and relationship development. I get teased sometimes about, so DHS is now doing marriage counseling. And the truth is, yeah, we kind of are, because the thing is, is that what goes on at work goes home. What goes on at home comes to work. And so we do really recognize that reducing the divorce rate, increasing marital satisfaction or partnership satisfaction doesn't have to be a marriage. Uh, It actually reduces the employee's stress and it really uh, decreases what we call presenteeism, which is you're at work, but you're not really mentally, mentally here. And then dependent care is the other thing because we know that our employees have issues with child care issues. Um, they really do struggle with the fact that um, they've missed yet another birthday, that they've missed uh, picking their child up from daycare because, you know, they're in the middle of a pursuit or something. So we're working to make sure that they have means for that. And then wellness uh, work, you know, wellness programs that really go to their physical activity. Law enforcement has one of the highest uh, chronic heart diseases, um, you know, or at least, yeah, chronic heart disease within law enforcement is some of the highest that there is. And so we're really working on what are our wellness programs? How do we make sure that um, we, we really have medical standards in place that really kind of drive drive um, them to have mental um, physical well-being in addition to the mental well-being? And then with regard to mental health, I think we've touched on quite a quite a few of these things. Everything from the leadership support to our reach um, our reach coaching tool that we've partnered with the Department of VA. They've actually reach, recently launched that, which reach stands out for reach, reach out, engage, attend, connect, and help. And so it's really something that that we're uh, encouraging folks to use and doing it in less honestly, less in a, in a voluntary manner and making things just a tad bit more uh, mandatory for folks. We're um, actually going to reach out to our unions as well and get their support in some of these 
and some of these areas, because we know it's not just about the leadership, but actually being able to hear um, from their colleagues and from their trusted union representatives is important as well. So those are just a few of the things that we're doing to, I would say, proactively look at what are the risk factors. Some of the things that that we want to really get into and start doing is we're hiring psychologists because we want to start doing um, psychology and that um, autopsies of these suicides so that we can really dive in and hone in. Is it, is it, did they have alcohol in their blood and had a gun? Did they, you know, was it a substance? Was it because of a marital issue? Like really fine tune. We know statistically what's going on across the nation. And because we're 250,000 strong in DHS, we're like a microcosm of society, so we can kind of extrapolate off of that. But when you start doing psychological uh, um, autopsies of these suicides, you, which DOD does, you get, I think, uh, you get to dive a little bit deeper and we get to be a little bit more focused when it comes to our own uh, law enforcement officers. You know, Angie, I, I have to commend you tremendously, and I just want to reach through the phone here and hug you because the stuff that DHS is doing is outstanding. You you mentioned neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. It is so true. The brain can change. You can go from a fixed mindset where you avoid change to a growth mindset to embrace change. And just to echo what you're doing, uh, FLIOA is also trying so hard to get some resiliency training out to our membership. So we're all human beings, leaders and field workers, agents, we're all human beings. From the top down, management is given all of these tools. Now what we have to do is smash the stigma. We have to break these barriers because uh, University of Phoenix did a study 85% of first responders do have issues from cumulative or vicarious stress, but 55% of these people believe that their supervisors will treat them differently if they mention that they have mental health concerns. I have to tell you, I'm on the receiving end of people since I've been sending out e-blasts and I've been writing articles and giving people little tools to get out there and reconnect with society because we're social human beings and that's what we're supposed to do to even promote mental health further but if we smash this stigma we can actually get more people into help now the problem is from the ground up some of the supervisors are not getting the message from what you guys are doing you're you guys are doing some amazing work so how do you drill that all the way down from from headquarters all the mm-hmm. way down to the field so that so, so that that 1811 that GS7 GS9 1811 or air marshal or anybody else can actually feel wow somebody cares about me in headquarters because once they can embrace that then your program is 1000% successful you know with the resilience gratitude we te- we teach the gratitudes mm-hmm. it's so important to just undo these negative emotions, pr- promote the optimism. And, you know, empirically it's supported. If you just say three things you're thankful for, for 21 days, believe it or not, you will see a change. You know, your blessings, do a random act of kindness. You get more fulfillment doing something for somebody else. And these are part of the resilience program. Yeah. You know, if I if I could jump in here, jump back in here. So you are so right. And I'm so glad to hear you say that, because I got to tell you, last year um, I started writing to our employees, all 250,000 of them. Right. And I remember the first time that I wrote to them and, you know, leadership gave me the ability to do this. But I wrote to them and I said, 
and of course this is during COVID, but I was like, listen, you know, sometimes we ask our mind a question all the time, but drop down into your heart and ask your heart the question and see what answer you get back from your heart. And I remember the depth, our depth psych at the time he wrote to me and he's like, wow, Ange, that's a little out of the wheelhouse, but okay. And you know, what's interesting is I started getting hundreds of responses to every weekly email that I wrote about these kinds of concepts, you know, talking about this, but one law enforcement officer wrote to me and, and this is kind of still gives me chills. He wrote to me and he said, I just want to thank you because, you know, I do carry a gun, but I have a heart too. And, and I think it was like, you know, it's like all of a sudden, and it didn't matter. Like I literally had three-star admirals writing to me saying that it was helpful to just like, whenever I said to them, you are enough right? It's enough that you've given your child chicken nuggets and mac and cheese for four days in a row. You're enough, right? And just kind of went along with this because I think sometimes we overcomplicate all of this and we forget that people are, they're humans and they're having a human experience. And what they really want is the connection and the understanding with each other. And it seems seems to me that that's just at least one small step in how we've started to break down the stigma is to actually talk about what used to be considered woo-woo, right? And kind of crazy soft skill stuff is all of a sudden considered mission essential necessity in order for us to be able to not only take care of ourselves, but take care of, for us, the, you know, uh, the nation and its, and its safety and its security. And so I think it's, um, I could talk about this all day because it actually gets me kind of excited uh, to, you know, to have these conversations. So thank you, Jean, for reinforcing that we're on the right path. I appreciate it. I see a terrific partnership ahead of us. Awesome. I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you're doing, because that could impact the numbers that I see. So thank you. We have a lot of work to do. In fact, um, you know, we just had a suicide last night, and that's what actually why I was having a conversation with leadership right before this. And we are not on a good trajectory right now. And so I, we really welcome the partnership uh, with both of you to, to help us because we don't have all the answers and we're struggling with this and it breaks our heart every, every, every time. Thank you for highlighting that we are human beings behind the badge. We're people. We're people. Right. And the fact that you said that, you just reached so many people because that's what they need to hear. Thank you. This is an incredible discussion, and it's so great to be able to bring you guys together um, on our little show so that we can reach out to all of these people and make sure that they know exactly what you're saying, that they are people that they are enough um, and that these conversations are worth having. And I think this has been really great. We do need to stop here for our final break. When we come back, we're going to make sure all of our listeners know how they can access the resources necessary to um, maintain their mental fitness. And we're also going to bust some myths that I know some people have about asking for help and some of the fears associated with it. We'll be right back. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering our last segment of the show, and I'm going to have us dive right in with some Mythbusters. There are a lot of concerns regarding accessing help with security clearances. It can get very complicated in the law enforcement world. And Angie, it would be great if you can just ease some of these concerns and let officers know what they should consider when asking for help. This is something that um, that we hear about all the time that, you know, if I ask for help or if I reach out to EAP, that it's not confidential, that, um, you know, that it's going to affect my clearance, that I'm going to lose my gun, I'm going to lose my badge. And I and honestly, like, I think where we've come over a very long period of time, let's talk about the security clearance part of this first. First of all, with regard to the box that says, you know, have you received any kind of counseling uh, any kind of background investigator that is saying don't check, you know, yes to this box um, really, quite frankly, should be reported because that's that is not actually what they should be advising. It is so important that you tell the truth. That's what's important here, because if you don't check, if you don't, if you have sought, um, whether it's marriage counseling or whatever kind of counseling that might be, that as long as you're able to, you know, to, to be able to, to tell the truth about that. That is, again, the most important thing. In fact, it's the advice that I give to everyone, especially youngins who are coming in, you know, with regard to drug use and things. And so um, you just have to be careful about making sure that you tell the truth. There's always an appeals process with regard to that uh, as well. During our routine or, um, you know, we have continuous evaluation and we have background investigation and stuff. I will tell you, it's more detrimental that you had the DUI right, or that you had the bankruptcy, then it is that you sought help not to have a DUI and not to have bankruptcy, okay? So that's the distinction that I want to make here is like, don't wait till you're in trouble. Yes, that will impact it, but asking for help is not going to do that. Employee assistance programs are confidential. We have spent, you know, it used to be back in the day, I worked for DOD for over 20 years. And back in the day, anytime, and I was an employee relations specialist, and I would put in there, you know, if you've got an issue, please seek EAP. It was always pretty much drilled in everyone's head that you sought EAP because you were a problem, because you were trouble, because we were really just trying to remove you and go ahead and seek EAP just as like a stepping stone to us removing you. That literally was kind of like the stigma. We are taking years to, I think, break through that and get folks to understand that, no, 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 no. Employee assistance programs are absolutely confidential. They are between you and, you know, the counselors that you seek. One of the things, though, that I do think we need to do, and this is something that we're pursuing in DHS, we have, again, we have EAP, but I want to have a law enforcement specific EAP, Right. Because we have a, we have 60 percent of our workforce is law enforcement. We need to invest in law enforcement counselors within our employee assistance programs, because I would argue that there's that, that, that the issues that they face are quite frankly different than 
are going to be different than mine, right? And so that is one area in which I would I would love to see us expand our efforts uh, our efforts in. So, bottom line, just tell the truth, right? We we want to know that you are taking doing self care and that you are getting the help that you need because that's really important to us. And honestly, what it shows us is that you're courageous, that you're brave, that you really do have what it takes to actually be a law enforcement officer because you care enough about yourself to be able to then care about those that you serve. So I will just um, leave it at that. I cannot emphasize enough uh, that last point you just made to ask for help, to admit that you're struggling is courageous and it is brave. And if there is one kind of message that people hear from the show, I, I hope it is that. Now, you spoke a little bit about the importance of that confidential counseling and making sure it's the correct counseling. And I know that's something, Jean, you have focused on as well, and Shelly might have some input on as well. So let's talk a little bit about making sure you have the correct and the most confidential counseling. Well, as far as the correct counseling, you know, just like when you go to a doctor for if you hurt your knee, are you going to look for somebody who specializes, who will take care of your knee? Or are you going to look for somebody who's just a general practitioner that focuses on toes? No, you're going to focus on, on your knee. And that's what you want is a culturally competent counselor. And when somebody's culturally competent, it doesn't mean that they watch Law & Order on TV. It means that they understand the culture of law enforcement. We see things differently. We, we develop over the years something called cop's eyes. We, are take, we live in a fishbowl. We're constantly under scrutiny. So you need somebody who can understand the stresses of the job, the reasons why we do certain things. And I think uh, some of these programs like traumas and law enforcement and some of these programs that really highlight who the cop is, who the law enforcement officer is, why they do what they do, why, they, why we sit in, without our backs to the exit and why we look for the exits at movie theaters and why we do all of these things. So culturally competent vetting these people are so important. And, and when we talk about resources, we'll talk about how to find these culturally competent clinicians, counselors, social workers, because it's so important that you don't get re-traumatized while you're seeking counseling. I've heard horror stories of people going in there and wanting to talk to their counselor about the trauma they just saw, whether it was if they're working with child pornography or uh, if they're working human trafficking and the counselor telling them, stop, I can't take this. So it's just absolutely horrific. So if you do need that resource, uh, we'll talk about it, but please feel free to reach out to FLIOA. And another thing, the confidentiality of uh, confidential opportunities for peer support counseling act, the COPS Act, just passed the Senate unanimously, and it's a bipartisan supported bill, which prohibits the disclosure of contents of peer support communications and requires the DOJ to develop the best practices and professional standards for peer support counseling. So this is fantastic. The next move is going through the House and then getting signed into law. So we're really moving in the right direction on the federal level. And I, I wanted to add something. I um. In, in 1996, I was shot in the chest at a 12-gauge shotgun at point-blank range. And as a result of that, obviously, the department sent me to a professional counselor through EAP. Um, I went to see her, and one of the things she said to me was, getting shot is like getting raped. 
And at that point, I said to her, what do I have to say so I don't have to come back here again? Um, she did not understand the culture of law enforcement. She did not understand any of it. And so I can't, from personal experience, I can tell you the importance of having someone who understands the culture um, when they're seeking help is, is vital. Absolutely. There are so many stories of those experiences that it's just a disconnect between the culture of law enforcement and the general population. And that is critical. Luckily, we have three organizations here who are dedicated to supporting law enforcement and have provided resources. Angie, you've already listed some of them, but can you just remind us what services DHS offers and where people should go to find more resources? Yes. Let me just start with our employee resource page. And, and again, it's www.dhs.gov backslash employees. And on that page, you'll find a full, uh, full range of services and support things, everything from our employee assistance programs to um, the, the coach reach program that we talked about. And it also gives you links to all of our components and what programs they have available, such as the Stronger Bonds, the Mindfulness Training, et cetera. So it's really a good place to start. It's a one-stop shop. We've kind of broken it down by your life event is life events as well, uh, and we have a we have a whole section that is dedicated really to the law enforcement and to suicide prevention. So I just really encourage folks to bounce around in there. You can actually subscribe to that page. Again, it's public facing. You can subscribe. You'll get my blog once a week, um, as well as you know a, a lot of really good information. Because again, for us, it's not just about the the suicide prevention, but address the risk fact, the things that we know are the, the underlying causes of some of this and really trying to help employees with that so that we can really just, um, I, I'll use the words again, treat everyone as the whole person and treat them as human beings having a human experience because that's what they're having, right? They're not just having a law enforcement experience, they're experiencing life at the same time, right? So it can make it a little bit double whammy for for our law enforcement officers in some way. So that's why we've tried to be very mindful and careful about um, providing them resources that, that address them as a person. And as a reminder, that is a public facing page. So even if you are not a DHS employee, please go check it out. Um, Shelly, please tell us about where people can access additional resources from survivors of blue suicide. Well, we have um, a, a lot of information on our website, survivorsofbluesuicide.org, and we are getting more and more information um, from agencies um, as we become more known. Um, what we do is we provide the resources for the families um, and peer support for the families, retreat. We're going to have a national conference and, um, and, and a memorial for these families. Um, and what we do with the agencies, if they reach out to us, we will help them get started on their post-mention plans, or we will help them um, if they have a suicide um, on, on how to take care of the families and what to do for coworkers. Obviously, um, DHS doesn't uh, need our assistance because it sounds like they've got their, um, their act together there. So, but um, that's what we do. And we are there for federal employees, families who die by suicide also. Um, I, wa I wanted to stress that 
It's not just local, state, or municipal. You know, it's it's for their families as well. So have those families reach out to us. Absolutely. And Jean, please tell us a little bit about where people can access FLIOA's resources and some of the um, partnerships that you guys have worked on to provide individuals in need with support. Fantastic. Thank you. And uh, Shelly, thank you so much for extending and, and reassuring that you're there also for federal people. Uh, well, FLIOA, if you go to FLIOA.org, which is F-L-E-O-A.org, there's a mental health resource landing page. I write an article and we publish the articles on the website. And really, it's just quick tips and tricks, what to do and how to how to navigate through your day. So uh, just to humanize it, it's, it's not this long drawn out APA document that you have to sift through. It's really just me talking to you just through words in writing. The other thing we've done is we've teamed up with Acadia Health and Acadia Health has what they call treatment placement specialists. So we deal in particular with two. Bill Mazur and Joe Collins, both of them are retired chiefs of police in their respective departments. So they have done their time on the job. They work with other specialists and they actually have a cadre of culturally competent clinicians that they work with and recommend. They split the country. Joe, ha Joe has the West and Bill has the East. Uh, you can get their information on our FLIOA website. They are phenomenal human beings and you can talk to them confidentially too because they're not in law enforcement any longer. They are in the mental health profession and they are in the helping profession. These guys know their stuff. They're wonderful, amazing human beings and they have helped so many of our members and so many people that they really are a godsend. That is incredible. These are some really great resources. Please check them out, not just for you, um, but but for your loved ones as well. So that, you know, like we've said this entire show, it, it's a community effort and healthy officers do lead to healthy communities. I want to thank Angela Bailey, Jean Kanakogi, and Shelly Jones for joining me today for this absolutely vital discussion. And thank all of you for listening. Fed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great weekend.